I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hope. We're going fully medieval today, aren't we, Alina? We are because we've got Daniela Gonzalez, who is a medievalist, funnily enough. Uh, She's currently working at the Parliamentary Archives. She also helped start a lockdown library for medieval and early modern researchers, which I think is absolutely awesome. But today we are talking about Nicholas Brembe and the Merciless Parliament of 1388. Welcome, Daniela. Hi, and thank you so much for having me here. I'm super looking forward to talking about Brembe, the Merciless Parliament and a fantastic set of guild petitions that were crucial um, in this story. This is really good. Uh, so we are medieval morons, the two of us. So we love hearing about this stuff. Um, but I, I can't wait because um, I was recently reading that actually, like literally the whole of society is built on these uh, relationships and these guilds and everything. And this is it all basically going to shit, isn't it? Yeah, basically in um, London, 1380s London is a little bit crazy and it's really characterised by factional politics, particularly between Nicholas Brembe um, and another man called John of Northampton, who is another key figure uh, in the story of 1380s London. Um, And I mean, they've both been described as sowers of discord. Um, They have very different opinions. Um, They implement very different reforms in the city of London and this is where where they clash so much so that after Nicholas Brember became mayor in 1383 um, though I should say that he was also mayor in 1378 um, actually yeah when Nicholas Brember became mayor in 1383 things really kicked off um, and that actually ends up with John of Northampton in February 1384 um, kind of rising up against him and John of Northampton ends up being um, arrested. Uh, he hasn't got, you know, he's not very lucky. He ends up on trial at Reading in August 1384 and he's then sent off um, and exiled from the city of London the following month. He's actually sent to, um, he's sent to Cornwall. And I'm going to butcher this pronunciation. I think it's Tin- Tintagel or Tintagel Castle. Um, yeah. And he stays there until about 1390. Well, okay, before we get into the nuts and bolts of why this happened, can you tell us a bit about what London looks like in the 1380s? I'm guessing smaller than we know it now. Yeah, definitely. I have to say, I didn't look so much at London's geography, Mm. um, though there are some fantastic images. There's a really cool image of London um, in, what's, what's it called, in Matthew Paris's text. There's another really cool image, actually, that if you go on my Twitter page, um, it's a really amazing image of London in the 15th century. So do have a look at that. But what I will say with London is London, as we know it now, as you said, is obviously really big. um, But at this point in time, it didn't include Southwark and it didn't include Westminster. Um, Perhaps calling them suburbs of London is not the correct terminology to use, but they didn't actually form part of a city they were outside the city walls at this point Um, and it's much later in the early modern period when you see 
far more urbanization taking place and London really, really expanding. Tell us, what was the merciless parliament and why did it take place? So the merciless parliament is a parliament that started on the 3rd of February, 1388. Um, And the reason that the merciless parliament occurred was because there were a group of nobles um, that we know as the Lord's Appellant, and these included Edward of Woodstock, the Duke of Gloucester, Richard Fitzalan, uh, Earl of Arundel, Thomas de Beecham, Earl of Warwick, Thomas Mowbray, Earl of Nottingham, and a character that we, that we all recognise, Henry Bolingbroke, Earl of Derby, who later becomes Henry IV. And they complained to Richard that he had several corrupt um, advisers, and really, it goes back to the, to the wonderful Parliament of 1386, when Michael Delapole, who is Duke of Suffolk, and he's also Chancellor at the time, um, he is accused of using his office and engaging in corrupt practices. And basically, um, this kicks off a lot of trouble. Um, he asks for extra taxation during this parliament and, and the Commons ask for his impeachment. Now, this sets off a uh, variety of events where Richard, um, Richard II, who's king at this time, gets really annoyed. He ends up going north um, once a set of commissioners have been put in place. Um, and they're in place until the 10th of November 1387. And this is when Richard comes back to London. Um, the council's the Council of Commissioners term expires. There's then a conflict at Radcot Bridge Um, and the appellants who I mentioned before, they communicate with Richard II who is in the tower at this point and they're like, right, um, we're we're not tolerating this corruption anymore. Um, We're putting five characters on trial for um, approaching the royal power and these five are Michael Delapole, the Chancellor himself, Robert Tresillian, who is Justice of the Chief Justice of the King's Bench, Alexander Neville, who is the Archbishop of York, uh, Robert de Vere, who is Duke of Ireland, and Nicholas Brember, who, is, who was Mayor of London until 1386. So he's there for three years. So, what do we know about Nicholas Brember before? he sort of summoned for this court proceeding? Right, so Nicholas Brember is actually a really prominent figure that comes out in the civic records of medieval London and you'll find him in the plea and Miranda rolls. You'll find him mentioned in London Letterbook H and those two two primary sources are kept at London Metropolitan Archives. You can see them in person um, and there are also editions of them if anybody does want to check them out. But you also see him mentioned in various chronicles and he and he also features in proclamations that are issued during his term of mayor and really kind of what my understanding of Nicholas Brember and the way that I examined him was he actually faces a lot of a lot of difficulties during his time of mayor he reverses lots of the reforms that John of Northampton put in place when John of Northampton himself was mayor earlier in the 1380s and really, Nicholas Brember is, he's a person who has been characterised as looking, um, looking out for his own people. He really looks out for the company of grocers, which is the company he belongs to. He um, monopolises the wool trade. 
Um, and he really looks out for other people who are vitalists. So John of Northampton, when he was mayor, passed a statute in 1382, which basically said that if you're a vitalist, so somebody who sells foodstuffs, uh, you couldn't have judicial office. Um, you can hold judicial office if you are carrying on with your trade. And Nicholas Brember basically reverses everything that Northampton does. He, he, you know, his reforms, the way he governs London is completely different. Um, and, and, and he's basically the antithesis of Northampton. Northampton was personified as this person who, you know, he's a man of the people and, and someone who, you know, yes, he, he uses the, he, pleads to the king, he, he, he makes use of that power, but he really comes across as somebody who was looking out for the interests of all Londoners despite their ranks. And, and Nicholas Brember really doesn't come off in that way. Um, and what we can see from the documentary evidence is someone who consistently during his time as mayor tries to implement his authority time and, and time again. We see, um, we see a lot of documents that actually highlight his anxieties as well. So he issues a set of proclamations that basically try to silence people. They um, try to put people in place saying you can't form any kind of malicious assemblies um, against me. You can't speak any seditious words. So he's someone who really, I, I think, is facing a lot of difficulties in 1380s London. Lots of people don't like him. And obviously this ends up, it kind of ends up exploding in the merciless parliament of 13. 88. And I will give a bit of a spoiler. Uh, Nicholas Brimber is not lucky whatsoever, and he gets his head chopped off in February 1388 um, for being found guilty of approaching the king's power and, and just being general um, generally corrupt. Well, you talked about how Northampton is seen as the man of the people. Uh, Brimber, not so much. But there's a lot of discontent during these years, especially in regards to the way that he was elected mayor of London. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, definitely. And and this, again, comes out so much in the petitions that I'll discuss um, in a little bit more detail later. But what we see from the records and the petitions is that the way that he became mayor in 1383, um, and no surprise, he stood against John of Northampton at this time, who... Um, obviously didn't get re-elected as mayor. So the way that his, his election is described is that Brember had an armed mob um, and, and used that as a form of intimidation um, against people from craft guilds who would have been present. And, and very similarly, later in 1384, when he stands again for re-election as mayor, he stands against a man called Nicholas Twifford, who himself is a goldsmith so he he's a member of the craft or, or artisanal guilds um, and yet again he takes away the rights of um of the artisans of any crafts he says that the only the people who um he has summoned are present can be present at the election and and that goes very much against kind of customs and and traditional practices so what he basically ends up doing in 1384 is taking away uh, taking away their voice taking away their rights to to, to challenge him. Um, so, so basically, overall, there is consensus within these petitions that no, he's done this in a really corrupt way. Like this isn't on. He's moved away from the way that you should be governing London and you should be implementing these practices within these institutions. Particularly if you think about 
the fact that the elections are held at the Guildhall. Now, the Guildhall stands as a place of justice, of law, of fairness. That's where London governance uh, comes out of. And, and Grenba is, is basically subverting that. Uh, and this is very much the representation that we do get in these petitions. And it is a complaint that's, that's put forward. And it's, and it's also linked to the fact that he, that Bremba was able to, to do that in a, in a corrupt manner because he approached the king's power, which basically means he, he abused the king's power. He used kingly power in order, in order to carry out this deviance and these misdeeds. I think before we crack on, I, just for the people, because we have a lot of listeners in America, um, just briefly tell people what the guilds are, why they're so powerful and why it's a bad idea to piss them off at this point in London's history cool so I will um so you do have basically some kind of more like merchant guilds so grocers um people who work in wool fishmongers um and fishmongers and grocers are very historic guilds but you also do have the artisanal guilds now one thing that I will point out is you do have very very powerful guilds as you've said so you've got the mercers and the goldsmiths, for example, and they're really influential um, at this point in time. The goldsmiths, for example, um, their own individual. So as well as the Guildhall, you've kind of got own individual guilds. Um, and the Guildhall for the goldsmiths really did serve as a kind of political hub, almost a place that you could come and uh, debate and, and challenge and, and talk about Northampton's reforms, for example. But you do also get kind of less less wealthy guilds so you get the kind of pinners the painters uh but nevertheless as you do see in the petitions they they join the wealthier guilds and 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 rise up so this is basically you go and join the one that represents your profession um and this is they're london's power brokers aren't they um these groups yeah essentially definitely the mercers and the and the goldsmiths and when you join you join as an apprentice and then once you qualify um, you, yeah, you'd be a full, um, a full craftsman. Um, I would say it's really important to be a part of these guilds as well because that earns you kind of freedom and liberties of the city of the city of London. So you get certain privileges with that. So basically, it's a union in layman's terms. Yeah, kind of. It, in in a way, I mean, I don't know as much about this side of things, but you also get fraternities in this mm-hmm. in this era and parish guilds and in fraternities, you'd have members that they'd cross over from from different fields i didn't um didn't really look into it but if you look at a set of sources um which were produced in 1389 which i think are called the guild returns that would that would shed more more light on their practices so what's really important is that basically if you if you crap on one of these guilds you're you're essentially undermining um, the integrity of these professions, um, because this is, like you say, they go in as apprentices, then you become a member. Um, it's like your union, um, but they're prestigious as well, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very much like they're going to want to safeguard their authority. But in the meantime, Nicholas Brember's trying to do that for himself, isn't he? Doesn't he issue a lot of silly proclamations that you read them and they're just they're not really even about power. You can just see his insecurities written all over them. Yeah, so he does issue a various uh, various proclamations actually between 1384 and 1386. So he does try to to legitimate his own authority. So as I was saying before, he says, "Oh, you can't speak badly about me." 
um, you can't do this, you can't form these malicious gatherings. And a word that you see come out time and time again is covens. Um, so he's using, um, he's using set terms that carry like certain connotations that people would be familiar with. And it really is that kind of balance of, yes, we, we see him trying to implement his authority throughout, but actually, why would you have to, to repeatedly issue these if you, if you had that authority and it was established? So I, I was so interested in seeing what they told me about the insecurities he would have felt at this, po at this point in time. So they've got that almost, I guess it's almost like a paradox, really, and they've got like that dual, dualness. Uh, to them i mean it's so interesting because you also get a um a much later proclamation in 1387 that's issued on the king's behalf but it basically is about well you can't speak badly about me the king and you can't speak badly about the queen and you can't speak badly about my advisors which of course would include at this time uh nicholas brember i mean nicholas brember had very close links with richard ii um, I mean, even in during the Merciless Parliament itself, Richard really tries to fight his corner. That's present in the Westminster Chronicle, who who outlines that Richard is like, oh, Brember is not is not corrupt. He's fine, and he really tries to fight his corner. But there is one scholar who even goes as far as to say that Richard II ends up being like a liability for Nicholas Brember. This is the thing, isn't it? Richard II, you're thinking, oh, support of the king, but Richard II is a, a major dud in terms of Britain's kings and queens, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the circumstances around Richard II's reign are... I, I do think a lot of it does come down to circumstance. Remember, he does come to the throne as a minor, yeah. um, and that in itself um, presents presents problems and there are times in his reign when Richard really uh, comes across as demonstrating these kingly values. I mean in 1381 when he's I believe he's 14 at the time he comes out and he meets uh, the the rebels who took part in the peasants revolt and he displays you know this kingly charm this this charisma what a king should do but also he's very petulant he's a very turbulent character he has mood you know mood swings and I, what what you end up seeing later in the 1390s and this is so interesting as we're thinking about some of the rhetoric and terminology used in the merciless parliament um so i mentioned approaching royal power earlier and that's a term that doesn't come out very often in the parliament roles um i think a rule for richard's reign it comes up 50 something times i mean 30 35 times it's mentioned just during the merciless parliament but Richard actually then turns around in 1397 and accuses three of the Lord's appellants. Um, I think it's Warwick, Gloucester and Arundel of approaching um, royal power themselves. And this is basically, it's been suggested by a historian called Alan Rogers that he basically turns around and he's like, this is revenge for what you did to me in 1388. Like, how dare you? Um, so we do see him displaying, yeah, this very kind of turbulent, very petty, catty, behaviour at points in his reign. Alex might shoot me in a second for asking this question and I really need to ask this question so badly. Right, so the running joke is, an, it is a running joke, but it's it, it's actually deadly true. Um, I can't tell my kings from kings in history <laughs> at all. And I'm about to ask the stupidest question in the world. Please penalise me. Right, we are not talking about Richard the Lionheart, are we? No, 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 no. So Richard the Lionheart is um, much earlier. He's number one. And okay. then you get Richard the second and then Richard 
Richard III later um, towards the end of the Wars of the Roses. So the Richard III who supposedly killed the um, oh, the princes in the tower. It is really well, confusing though. though. It is confusing. Um, and even I'm, I'm not that good with medieval kings either. Um, but Richard II is another one like Richard III who gets worked over by Shakespeare, isn't he? So we should be careful mm. about a perception of Richard II because like Richard III, Shakespeare screwed him royally, didn't he? Exactly. And I mean, Richard, the, like, the, the, the history play on Richard III, I find absolutely fascinating. I wrote about it for my undergraduate um, dissertation. And when Shakespeare writes the history plays, I believe it's in the 1390s. Sorry, I'm getting confused with dates. <laughs> it's in the 1590s towards the end of Elizabeth's reign. And this is kind of um, what John Guy has characterised as this like nasty 90s when Elizabeth you know, there's like, there's famine, there's like war with Ireland, um, there's like a rebellion in like, I think it's 1601. Um, so it's, and you know, Elizabeth is really known for her golden age, but the 1590s aren't that great for Elizabeth. And when he writes Richard III, I mean, one of the arguments that I made and the way that the play ends, it's, it's so cleverly done by Shakespeare, where he ends the play basically saying, and the House of Lancaster and the House of York came together and they basically fixed all the problems of the Wars of the Roses. And yeah, Richard III really doesn't get like a good time in that, in that play at all. He really is presented as that kind of evil king who murdered his nephews, um, who had malicious intentions. And again, we get that kind of, um, that really kind of stereotype image of Richard as like a hunchback. So yeah, Shakespeare is not nice to him at all. Um, and I do think we have to take the history plays with a pinch a pinch of salt um as it's kind of yeah it, it, it's the story of the wars of the roses and it and it leads up to that moment at the end of the play richard the third hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place with linkedin you can hire professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com people today burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping and that extends to their outdoor collection their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's like someone in 200 years' time watching the Tudors and taking it as historical fact, isn't it? Oh, God, yeah, and you should never do that. (laughs) So let's go back to Nicholas Bremba. Um, You've mentioned a term a few times. Let's explain it to people um, a bit better. Accroaching the king's power. This is like a catch-all in medieval times, isn't it, for for anyone that's got too big for their boots? Yeah, and like Nicholas Bremba, the way he's presented in the petitions, in the parliament roles... Um, and even in a source known as Thomas Favant's pamphlet is this kind of stereotyped evil counsellor that you get time and time again in the, in, in the medieval period and also in the early modern period. It does come out a lot in, um, in some Henry VIII rebellions and, and much later. But basically, 
she's seen as this man who has abused the king's power. And that's basically what approaching the king's power is. It's almost like taking the king's power and, and you exercising it yourself. Now, the mayor of London is a really significant figure because it's almost like being a king in London. And something that's, that's really great about London is whenever you get a new king, the king issues the city of London like a charter saying, yeah, like your mayor's like in charge. Um, and I authorize him with this power to, to, to govern to govern London. But yeah, approaching royal power is one of these things where taking the king's power becomes, it's, it's treasonous. Now, really kind of significantly and curiously, um, the term isn't included in the 1352, um, I think it's Statute for Treason or Treason Act. Um, but at this point in time, they're like, no, like you have committed treason against the king. That is why it is so so bad that is why they're like no we want them on trial in parliament and parliament at this time is the right place to to do that rather than kind of the other courts so court of exchequer well as it was known exchequer of pleas or court of king's bench um and basically yeah they're like no like you've you've done the worst possible thing against the king uh, uh, you know that is that is possible and one of the things that I found so interesting when conducting my research was link was looking at the ideas of medieval political theory and placing approaching the king's power within that context because the um the king himself is meant to be the head of society so imagine um the king as the head and then you've got the rest of the body and you know somebody makes up the other limbs like the arms the legs the fingers the toes so if Brember is subverting the head everything else comes falling down with it and everything else is what forms the body politic that the king is meant to is meant to look after that's that's what makes a good medieval king someone who stamps out evil counselors and looks after his people and the, and the way that Brenda's presented in the parliament roles and the petitions is someone who doesn't allow the king to do that so by approaching the king's power what he's doing is having a detrimental effect on on the kingdom but, but also London more specifically. Um, the Lords of Pennant, they recruit the artisanal guilds of London, don't they, to go after Nicholas Bramber? They do. So they have a meeting of them on the 18th of January, 1388. So just before the merciless parliament starts on the 3rd of February. Um, and they basically have a chat with them uh, and, and basically ask them for their support. Now, it depends what sources you look at. Um, that, that tell us kind of about how key they were or, or the vital role they play. I mean, if you look at the Westminster Chronicle, he kind of plays it off and he doesn't really give them much significance. But if you look at Thomas Favant's pamphlet, Thomas Favant is like, oh my God, they were so key. Like they, they, um, they made such a large contribution to bringing Nicholas Brember down. I mean, one of the things that you might think of Thomas Favant's pamphlet, and it is partisan um, and this very much comes into it, but, there is an argument that it was made for Nicholas. Um, the audience was Nicholas Twyford, who himself was a goldsmith, who had been slighted by Brembo. Remember I said he um, he stood against Brembo in the 1384 mayoral election. He lost. Uh, he also doesn't really like Nicholas Brembo because in 1378, um, Nicholas Twyford was sheriff and then Nicholas Brembo also took that away from him. Um, I love this is basically a whole career of people he's hacked off have suddenly been given a license to get their own back isn't it basically yeah and and, I mean Nicholas Trifford is clearly not happy Um, and again one of the one of the curious things is a lot of um, 
a lot of debate about which is the first petition made because they're really similar like when you look at them together and you go through the transcription and you go through the translation they all have their own little you know intricacies and 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 quirks and 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 you know they really make the petitions their own but there's so much overlap in structure in wording um and there was someone who wrote a phd a few years ago called rob ellis who wrote a really compelling argument um debating you know stating that the goldsmith's petition was the very first one made so if if it is the first one made it's not really surprising because that was nicholas twifford's um guild okay so these petitions that the artisanal guilds put together um they're individual documents, aren't they, from these little political hubs? There's 15 altogether. Tell us about some of them. What are their beefs with Brember, and how do they make him sound as bad as possible? Oh, and they, and trust me, they do it very well. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, as you said, there are 15 petitions. Um, they're submitted by 19 guilds. Some of them submit them individually, and some of them submit them together. So, you get like the leather sellers. And the Wittoyers um, writing a joint petition, um, and that's um, I think the reason for that is because they both deal with like leather. Equally, you get the Cutlers. Oh gosh, it's a very long petition, so I might end up missing out a guild. But the Cutlers, the Bowers, the Spurriers, the Fletchers, and the Bladesmiths—they um, all work in metal, so they submitted a petition together. And again, like I said earlier, you do really get a mix of kind of wealthier guilds like the Mercers and the Goldsmiths, and and lesser less lesser um less wealthy guilds such as yeah. the pinners the painters actually curiously enough so the mercers which is one of the big guilds their petition is in english there is what's oh, really? called the anglo-norman mercers petition yeah and it's it's fascinating it's the only one out of the 15 that is written in in english um at this time and i think that especially at this point in time if you're writing something in english you want it widely understood and it, in a way, it becomes almost more politicised. Mm. Um, it's really, they're, honestly, they're such fascinating documents because normally um, when you get medieval petitions and, and these would have been presented, for example, not just to Parliament, but the Court of Chancery, the Exchequer of Pleas, normally they're only a paragraph long, whereas these are really kind of in a hybridised format. They're several par um, paragraphs. They're massive, massive records. Like if I, I don't have a picture here to show you, but I'd love to show you just how um how amazingly long they are honestly they stood out so much to me when i first looked at them i was like this is so weird like why is this so long like but they're really clever they adapt this pe petitionary diplomatic to put across their views and petitions are this excellent opportunity to get an insight into social concerns political concerns and what people kind of lower down the social scale like have to have to say i mean one of again one of the fascinating things about these petitions is they're written within the individual guild halls um petitions normally you'd have a professional clerk or scribe writing them within the kind of i guess court area or, or, or parliament what, what have you um and and some of the complaints that they make against Brember, and again like i said they're they're all really similar there's a lot of uniform complaints so they complain about his unjust election um at the guild hall how he becomes mayor they um they make reference to to an incident that occurred in cheapside in 1384 specifically february 1384 they also talk um actually to be fair not all of them mention this about eight petitions bring up a book that's called the jubilee book uh and that was a book that was written following the good parliament of 1376 that sought out to 
to reform the city um, and to move more towards the idea of, of the common good or the common profit, which basically is like the well-being of everyone. I mean, they have a great time saying, yeah, Brembo's worked against these, you know, this, this book is now destroyed because of Nicholas Exton, who has close links to Nicholas Brembo. They've destroyed the true articles of civic governance, like how dare they? Um, and I mean, other ones like I will bring in kind of, yeah, things that are relevant to their own guilds. So I'm going to jump back to what I said about Cheapside. So the Cordwainers yep. and the Saddlers mention what happens at Cheapside. Um, and this actually takes a place a few days after John of Northampton rises up against Nicholas Bremer on the 7th of February. This incident at Cheapside takes place on the 11th. And there is this man called John Constantine, or Constantine, I never know how to pronounce it, I'm probably <laughs> pronouncing it incorrectly. Um, but he ends up being executed, he gets beheaded um, during this incident by, um, by those on Nicholas Bremer's side. And, and the Cordwainers are like, how dare you, you've done this against our guild. Like he was, was a Cordwainer. And, and so it's immediately like an affront against them. Now the Saddlers also main, uh, mentioned John Constantine. Um, and that's because the Saddlers and the Cordwainers work together very, very closely. I mean, other guilds like the Goldsmiths mentioned some of their own members. So one individual who they mention is Richard Murden, who gets imprisoned. And very unfortunately, the Gold, I, I, I know I said that the Goldsmiths petition is potentially the first one that went round. Mm. It's actually quite fragile um, and, and there are bits missing. So because of the damage on, on the document, um, I can't read the other names, which is really annoying. Oh, but yeah, it's good. I could get like Richard Murden and, and talk a little bit about how, again, that is another direct affront against the Goldsmiths. Um, particularly and they you know they really put this in the London context they really make the petitions their own you know they're really well thought out they they highlight that Brembo's worked against their not just their reputation and, and you know he's not just brought about their detriment but he's brought about the detriment of of London uh Londoners more widely some some petitions mention not just other mysteries and guilds but but workers in the city so you might think, yeah, of course, they're, they're giving in these petitions because they've suffered at the hands of Brembo. Brembo like reversed loads of um, loads of reforms that Northampton implemented that would have benefited them. But you do you do have to give it to them. They're so clever in the way that they do this. They're like, oh, yeah, we've we've lost out. But so has the rest of London. And one of the things that's so um, interesting and I think is done so well is that at no point do they make any offence to, to Richard II? They do say, okay, yeah, your power's been approached. Like, the, this should be done for, for king and for crown and the law should be stuck to. But I think they do realise they need to be very kind of... It's smart. It's like, yeah. we're only thinking of you, dear King Richard, rather than sort of implicating him in any of this. Can I exactly. ask, you have studied pretty much everything you can find on Nicholas Brember. Do you think, what's your hunch? Did he give a crap when he was like climbing his way to the top or was he just hapless and he just managed to annoy everybody on the way up? That's such a good question. I mean, just so an opinion. Things. As a historian, it's like, ah, oh no, I can't answer this. I can't answer this. Just your opinion, your hunch. What do you think? Oh. 
Oh, is he honest, just a knob or is he like, do you think, oh, did you even realise you were doing this at the time? I think he's a man definitely after the power. I mean, that's why you make links with, with the king. You forge those links. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm going to bring John of Northampton back into this. He forged links with John of Gaunt, who initially didn't support him. But John of Gaunt saw this political opportunity and he was like, I'm going to get in there and, and join this. Because there is a lot of tension anyway between John of Gaunt and, and mm. Richard II. I, I think Nicholas Bremba, it's, it's a very unfortunate end. I do think he was a bit hapless. And I think it's really telling that by 1387, loads of his supporters are kind of abandoning him. They know that he's in a bad position. They know he's made mistakes. Um, I think a lot of it is circumstantial, but I, I do think he, he played a bad hand of cards. And it doesn't end well for him. So tell everybody what happens. You already mentioned he gets his head cut off. So what, what do they find? at this uh, merciless parliament and also as well what does it mean for Richard II? So they basically find Nicholas Bremer guilty he's unlucky and he stands on trial on the 17th of February and then gets the chop on the 20th so bye bye Nicholas Bremer. It's pretty quick. It is yeah it's a very very quick turnaround but what I will say is also associates of Nicholas Bremer also get the chop so there is a man called Thomas Thomas Usk who um people will know for having written his appeal against John of Northampton. Now, Thomas Usk is such a political opportunist. He actually starts off in John of Northampton's party. And then when he realises that things are going south for John of Northampton and actually Usk ends up imprisoned anyway, um, he joins Nicholas Bremer's party in 1384-ish. Um, but yeah, bad, bad move for him because he ends up executed as well. Um, now, in terms of Richard II, I think 1388 for Richard is a watershed moment. I think it must have been quite scary for him, actually, in terms of the appellants coming forward, making these accusations, kind of taking over, really. And I think Richard really wakes up in terms of, oh, my God, I need to, I need to be king. Like, I need to put down my, my authority. So I do think 1388 in that way is, is is a big wake-up call for him um, and we do see in the 1390s that he really has his own idea of who he is as king what it means to to be king and you really see these exalted ideas of his own kingship how he himself conceptualizes that and understands it in in the Wilton diptych which is kept at the National Gallery and which I am absolutely dying to see in person oh. again <laughs> fingers crossed it like opens up soon okay the people of London, this, I mean, this is, this is a seismic event in the history of London, isn't it? And for the people of London mm. at the time, tell us to what extent they're just fed up with both of these guys by the time you get to 1391. So the best example that I have of this, and I thought it was such a good find when I was doing my research, I was like, oh yes, this is awesome. I can like link it back to from Bruno Hampton and this idea of common profit. So the idea of common profit, as I said before, which is the um, idea that you act for the well-being of everyone, was really central in the research that I um, that I carried out, and I, I tried to really place the language that I was looking at and the records I was looking at within this kind of context and how um, common profit rhetoric links up with governance. But in in carrying out my research, I found this proclamation dating to 1391, and it's issued under the then mayor of London, who is a different person called Adam Bam. Basically, what the, the proclamation says is 
nobody can speak about this dispute between Northampton and Bremba. Like it causes loads of dissension, it causes riot, it causes problems. So everybody just stop. We've, we're fed up of this. We don't want to hear about this. Um, bringing this up and causing these problems means you're working against the good of the community of London. You're working against um, us being able to establish the, the, the common good and, and work towards that. Um, and to be honest, I really do, I, I do think they're fed up by by this point and so much so that I think what what you end up seeing in the 15th century at least in the early 15th century you don't really see problems like you like you see in the 1380s and I think by this point they've really learned their lesson they're like oh my gosh this awful stuff happened like there's so much turbulence we're all so fed up of this um and 1380s basically serves as a lesson to those ruling much much later on and allows them to work towards a common good and and implement these ideas it's been brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on to give us uh, just a little insight into just a snapshot of London's history. And of, I just love that we all think our politicians now are, are the most inept, <laughs> corrupt idiots there are. But no, it has always been this way. It is. I, I will say that my dad, when um, so my dad read my entire PhD, and he would text me, and he's like, "This sounds really familiar." I was like, "Oh yes, oh yes, it does." It absolutely does. Um, before you go, tell us about this lockdown library. Oh, excellent. Um, so MEMSLib was created by myself and some other postgraduates at the Centre for Medieval and Early Modern Studies at the University of Kent. Um, it's online at www.memslib.co.uk if you'd like to access it. And what it is, is basically an online platform that is... Um, filled with mainly online resources for medieval and early modern studies. There are pages dedicated to, to the study of manuscripts and codicology. Um, there's a section there for paleography. We have a page on Islamic studies, a page for uh, early modern and medieval history, early modern literature um, and history as well, early modern drama. And so there's a little bit of something for everyone. There's also um, links to, to theological texts if you're interested in studying medieval religion or the reformation there's also a really good forum that you can use all you need to do is sign up as a member and when you sign up as a member it'll get approved by the now um the the committee who now who now run mems live and you can use that forum to ask questions to ask for resources there was also a recent edition and um, that my that the previous team that that i was part of um, where you can put up call for papers for conferences that you're either organizing or that you've seen. Um, and I mean, if you have a resource that you would like to be added that isn't there, just get in contact with the team. You can either send them a direct message on Twitter, which I'm sure that they're very happy to receive. Uh, and if you go on the website, um, you'll be able to find the contact details there to, to just, drop them, just drop them a line. They're always really happy to answer any questions so yeah if you're a medievalist or early modernist and you you know you can't get to your libraries you can't get to archives um you're, you're having some trouble definitely check out memslib because it's it's got a fantastic set of resources that you can use and you don't have to be and um, i will emphasize this you don't have to sign up as a member to use the resources all the links are there and they're all free some on open access, but there will be um, a label next to the source to say whether you need university access for that particular one. 
Brilliant. Thank you so much. What a great resource. Uh, far more constructive than Alina and I in our lockdown efforts, uh, just waffling at people. Brilliant. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. And thank you so much for having me. I'd love to come back and talk yeah, more about medieval London, kingship, the other sources I looked at. It's been absolutely great. So thank you so much. It's a deal. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.